I don't even remember whom I'm offending. This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I am your host, Mark Oppenheimer, joined as ever by my co-hosts, Tablet Deputy Editor Stephanie Butnick. Hi, happy to be here. And Tablet Editor-at-Large, Liel Leibowitz. Can you believe it's almost Tammuz? <laughs> it's just the summer. You know what they just... say, Tammuz you lose. <laughs> <laughs> is there a better name for a month than Tammuz? I'm sorry, January. But we got Tammuz. Which is the fast day this month? It's the what of Tammuz? 17, yo. And what does that commemorate, Liel? The beginning, if I'm not mistaken, of the siege on Jerusalem. Of course, now I'm Googling it because I'm feeling very insecure. <laughs> I think that's right. It is indeed. Shiva Shabbat Tammuz is sort of a three-week mourning period for the destruction. Yeah, that's the day in which the walls of Jerusalem were breached prior to the destruction of the second temple. But not the period during which we don't get a haircut or get married. Correct. That's between Tisha B'Av and Yantif. That's a special, special one. Is Yantif just a holy day? Yes. Yeah, I mean, it's Chag. It's Yiddish. Yeah. So like, what is and isn't a Yantif? Well, there's a difference in Hebrew between Chag and Mo'id. The latter, or the former, I should say, is a holiday, a festive day of celebration, and the latter is just a day to commemorate. Literally means a day of commemoration. So like Passover is like hog, hog, kohamoed for a few days, then hog, hog. Yes, which reminds me, did I ever tell the story about the <laughs> I mean, Allah I mean, security? probably. Probably did. <laughs> you know what? We, Liel, we've gained listeners since you last told the story. It's new to them. <laughs> tell them. Tell the newbies. So this is a classic yeshiva story going around. You know how when you fly, some listeners do not know, but when you fly El Al, <laughs> Israel's national airline, uh, the security process is basically like talking to your aunts. Like, where do you go to shul? Right. They where? Who is your rabbi? It's like these incredibly like just inquisitive and intrusive questions. They're always one your... step away from <laughs> right. saying. They're always one step How away from saying. How much do you make? Dro- <laughs> drop trowel. Right. When did you last have intercourse? They're crazy questions. <laughs> Are you regular? <laughs> <laughs> That's what they they knock on the door of the bathroom in the airplane. <laughs> this Rosh Yeshiva. This big rabbi walks to security and he has this long white beard and everything. And the, you know, the security guard is like 23, feels bad, but she has to do her job. She's like, well, sir, clearly you're Jewish. Just tell me what's the next Chag. And this was right before Hanukkah. And he looks at her and says, it's Passover. And she says, don't you mean Hanukkah? And he's like, well, according to Halacha, it's not Chag unless you sacrifice the Korban Chagiga, which is the most kind of El Al Jewish thing that ever happened. Well, I can only call it that if the Halacha is, you know, permits the correct sacrifice. They're like, ding, ding, ding. You get upgraded to first class. Exactly. <laughs> you get upgraded to first class and you do not have to sit next right. to a lady. Balloons, balloons fall from the sky. <laughs> The aisles part, the stewardesses part the aisles and you go up to first class. You get to fly the plane. (laughs) Your faith is strong enough. You know, has no idea what we're talking about. Our Gentile of the Week, uh, whom we'll hear from later in the show, it's uh, Swami Tyagananda, the Hindu chaplain at MIT and Harvard. Our Jew of the Week is Meredith Shiner, and we're going to talk with her about her new podcast and also about the unveiling of the new statue commemorating Sandy Koufax at Dodger Stadium. But first, I just want to say happy camping. Tomorrow, Tuesday, we we bring Rebecca to her summer camp for her 97th summer there, her, her final summer there, in fact. And this is a, a matter of much regret and poignancy. She's pre-sad for leaving at the end of the summer. Aww. So that meant that Sunday, yesterday, we had to stand in a parking lot for an hour and a half with her bags because the camp now requires you 
to use this this trucking service. You gotta get those trunks out. To bring the duffels up. I, they didn't used to, I don't think. I think it's now, maybe it's a COVID thing, maybe it's a terrorism thing, but we have to ship her bags up before we ship her up. Hold on, hold on. This is This is amazing. You are telling me that camps are now basically taking a page from literally the worst industry on earth, airlines, onto how yeah. to treat campers. I will. I have to say, this was always a thing. The trunk left a oh, really? week before you did. Really? Interesting. And you would have to get everything. Not only did, would you have to get everything ready by that time, you couldn't have anything in there that you needed for the interim right. week. For the week, for the interim week, right. And so like, then you'd have your like Adidas, uh, like mini duffel that would go under the bus. Right. That had like your brand new sneakers for camp that were like two sizes too big because the woman at the shoe store like sized everyone up. Um, and then like just your essentials. <laughs> and then and then it happened on the way back where, you know, you left it in your bunk basically and you got on the bus home. And then like a week later, your stuff showed up and like hopefully you went through it before like the next year. So this is it's with the week during which you have to wear your shameful rags that you can't be seen in. At they're the called pool, At the mall. What about the stationary trunk? <laughs> You mean for their stationery and their pens? For their yeah, like- Yeah, the trunk that has your name and that font, the bubble font. Oh, I see. Guys, I, I know I know I'm the poor country mouse in this conversation. I literally went to camp sleeping on the floor in the forest and didn't shower for three and a half weeks and ate on a latrine door. I understand. But did you make the forest bloom? <laughs> I made nothing bloom, mostly my hygiene. But honestly, when Lisa- bought Lily, our daughter, who's headed to camp, stationary. It's like, what the fresh hell is this? And then I figured out it was actually a common thing. Stationary to, to yeah. write letters. The whole thing is so freaking foreign to me. Well, now I'm really offended that Rebecca doesn't write to me from camp. We should make like unorthodox fill-in stationary, you know, because it was like, dear blank, yes. camp is blank. The food is blank. The the weather is blank. Can I also make a suggestion here? If you, if, okay, if your kid is in camp and does not write to you, write to us and yeah. we will yes. write to you in their stead. That A letter writing campaign, reverse letter writing campaign. Uh. Where, <laughs> it's basically unorthodox Mad Libs. Dear Cindy, your daughter may not love you, but we do. I do have to share yet again the story from last year. I think it I think it holds up again, which is when I picked up Rebecca at summer camp and I was recognized by the sound of my voice in the parking lot, podcast fans. And you guys remember the story, right? Rebecca said <laughs> to me, do. Rebecca said, Dad, are you famous? And I said, Rebecca, in the Jewish summer camp parking lot. <laughs> <laughs> you better believe it. I am famous. <laughs> like the parents in this parking lot are my people. <laughs> Liel, Stephanie, I'm, I'm sending my children home. I'm losing a child this week. What's going on with you? So we we're also, you know, temporarily lending a child to a, 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 a from horseback riding camp, which fills <laughs> me with, with no end of joy. But I want to bring oh, which, which Wait, one? Sorry, is the, are the horses from? <laughs> and yes, the horses. <laughs> the horses are observant. You can ride the, the female over there and the men. We, we, didn't, we didn't go for the reform horses or the reconstructionist horses. We paid. Extra. They don't jump the hurdles. They jump the mechitza they- over there. <laughs> <laughs> if they do, they're fired from horse camp. I want to talk about something more serious that happened to me just now. And I kind of want to know if I'm overreacting or if I'm in the right. So today, as we record, it's Monday night. It is Lily's last night with us before she heads over to camp for the first time ever. To commemorate, celebrate this Yontif, uh, not this Moed, but this Chag, this holiday. We ordered from my previously favorite or no longer favorite restaurant, kosher restaurant, Kolbe, the Persian restaurant in Midtown Manhattan. Uh, I pre-ordered the food to arrive in 6.30, 30, 
figuring this gives us an hour to rejoice and eat and have a good time before all of us had to meet on this here Zoom and record this here show. So it's 6.30 and then it's 6.45 and then it's, you know, 7. And I call Colby and I was like, guys, you're now, you know, really late. And the guy that's like, oh, sorry, man. You know, we depend on these delivery apps and, you know, the guy arrived and he canceled and a new guy arrived and then whatever, you'll have it probably by 7.30 or 8. So first of all, you know, livid that the guy didn't call. But then I started thinking about it. And it kind of seems to me, you know, I, I'm, I'm on this long teshuva process about convenience, which I think is the most goyish thing ever imaginable. I think there's nothing more non-Jewish than seeking comfort and, and easy ways. Uh, and, you know, I was the king of using TaskRabbiters. When we, when we met you, you literally had TaskRabbited your whole life. I know. And I have done teshuva and I, I gave that up. And now I think I'm giving up all. I've, I've been using this very lightly, but I, I think I'm giving up all delivery services. But I want to raise another point. I want to raise that part of the kashrut process should be just like the food is prepared by people who keep the laws of kashrut and is in a kosher kitchen. I think the delivery men too should not be app people but should be in every Jewish business, should be people who actually care for the community, are part of its values, and will, if not deliver it on time, at least call you up and say, I'm really sorry, man. I know you had plans because we are a community together. Is that too much to ask to rewrite the rules of Kashrut to actually make sure that when so many of us depend on delivery apps, actually people who really care about you will deliver you food or tell you that they're running late? And not ruined your last meal with your kid? Okay, what if they wrote you a letter? <laughs> and and you actually, you have to wait a few days to get it. It's like so old school community tradition. What you're saying is that if they want to be called up for uh, a food aliyah, they have to be of the <laughs> of high moral exactly. character. That the only people who can ascend to whatever floor you live on of your building on the Upper West Side are people who are upstanding members of the Kahila. As far as I'm concerned, when I order from a kosher restaurant, it's different than ordering from, you know, your local Domino's or your, you know, That's local. interesting. It's just like, I'm I'm actually ordering from a place that is part of the community. I didn't want to cancel the order, even though, again, it totally, I didn't have this meal. I'm sitting here talking to you instead of doing it. I'm just drinking this martini, which is what I have for dinner almost every night. So I'm fine. But I'm saying like, don't you think that there is a argument to be made for part of like, us reasserting our values to say like, you know, we're not going to use these services. And if we do, we demand that the people who actually do the delivery be like members of the community, not some faceless app that lets everyone screw each other over. Is this basically a jobs program for Jews at the expense of all of the non-Jewish delivery people they employ? Not necessarily for Jews, people who could commit to actually caring about you. Okay. I think I'm in. I bet Stephanie is in. Listeners, if you're in. Call us, 914-570-4869. Talk to us about the ethics of food delivery. We're here for you and all of your summertime concerns. <laughs> Write to us at unorthodoxatabletmag.com or call us, 914-570-4869. Before we get to News of the Jews, we just want to say that like all of you, we are thinking a lot about the Supreme Court's decision last week overturning Roe v. Wade. We're looking for voices who can offer a Jewish perspective on abortion, what Jewish law says, and how we as Jews can process this difficult and divisive moment. Stay tuned and feel free to email us with any thoughts, unorthodox at tabletmag.com.
News of the Jews. We turn now to our Eurozone correspondent, Leah Leibowitz. Our Eurovision correspondent, you mean. So I would like to read to you from a delightful JTA piece. It's one of these cases where I saw the headline. I didn't even need to read the piece before I knew what it said, but I did read the piece and I'm glad for it because the headline says, which European countries are best for Jews? A new study offers unexpected answers. And in this delightful piece, we are treated to a new survey titled This is unimprovable. Europe and Jews, a country index of respect and tolerance toward Jews. (laughs) (laughs) You know it's serious because it has Jews twice. And basically, the study ranked 12 European countries by all kinds of measures of how tolerant they were towards Jews. Um, Do you want to guess who won? Should we talk about methodology first? Or do you want to... (laughs) Go ahead, Professor Butnick. Enlighten us as to the methodology of research here. Okay, so... Daniel Stetsky is a statistician with the London-based Institute for Jewish Policy Research, and he wrote the report. This, I'm quoting from JTA, to come up with the ranking, Stetsky gave each surveyed country grades on multiple subjects, including the Jewish sense of security, public attitudes to Jews, and the number of Jews who said they'd experience anti-Semitism. The study combined those scores with scores the author gave to countries' government policies, including their funding for Jewish communities, whether they had adopted a definition of anti-Semitism and the status of Holocaust education and freedom of worship. There is a very sophisticated scoring system here, but Liel, give us the winners. The winner with 79 points is Italy, Uh, apparently best country in Europe. For Jews. Molto bene. Molto oh, bene. Oh, the, the artichokes are fresh. The pizza is lovely. Everything is great. They were like, we heard Benedetta on your podcast <laughs> and we want to. I feel like Benedetta could take that to like at least an 82. We can actually yeah. get us three more points on there. We hear yeah. your Benedetta yeah. and we raise your carciofi a la Judea with a very it's close second. Judea. We got. Judea. Um, very close second with 76 points. Hungary doing its part, really rocking it for the Jews or a bunch of people from the Hungarian Jewish community in the piece who are indeed quoted saying this is a great place for Jews. Then Denmark, United Kingdom, Austria, birthplace of Hitler, the Netherlands, <laughs> Sweden, Germany, where Hitler eventually became chancellor, Spain, France, Poland. Now, let us let us pause there for, for just a brief moment. I've now read 11 countries, which means there is a 12th. That 12th, let me just be very clear about this, is the absolute worst country. Let me be blunt about this. The absolute worst country in Europe for Jews, the most anti-Semitic, vile, filthy nation, also happens to be the child rape capital of the world. Can you guess which country that might be with with a paltry 60, almost 20 points below Italy? Is it Belgium? (laughs) Could it be Belgium? Belgium ruining the curve. Indeed, it is. So, so, so terrible. When you're significantly more anti-Semitic than the French, you know you have a freaking problem. I really want to go to Belgium and just, you know, throw on a yarmulke and stand on the corners and just, you know, big star David necklace, yarmulke, just, excuse me, are you Jewish? Are you Jewish? Just, just like, just see what it just, come on, come on, have at me. And just see what it's like. Once again, the, the low country of low morals does not fail to disappoint us.
have an amazing show coming out this fall. It's one of several new shows that we will be premiering. It's about Jews and sports, and it's hosted by Meredith Shiner, who is a journalist and lifelong sports fan. Meredith's show is not coming out for a few months, but once we saw that a new Sandy Koufax statue was being unveiled at Dodger Stadium, we knew we had to talk to her. So here is producer Josh Cross and soon-to-be Tablet Studios podcast host Meredith Shiner. So, of course, there was a little story about Sandy Koufax. And here among the Unorthodox crew, when we uh, are looking for somebody to talk to about sports, there is nobody better than our friend Meredith Shiner. Because although you haven't met her yet, you will be as we're working on a special new project with her that'll come out in the fall. And I've got Meredith here with me to tell me all about what this is. But before that, Meredith, tell me a little bit about you. Well, first of all, incredible honor to be friend of the pod. Who am I is a very big existential question, but I guess I'll start as uh, I usually refer to myself as a recovering political reporter. But before I was a recovering political reporter, I was actually a recovering sports reporter. And so I've always sort of loved sports. And a few months ago, you all reached out to me because you had a special project in mind and it hit at the intersections of things that I really care about, which is sports and Jews and culture and what the intersection of all of those things tells us about ourselves. And it was an especially interesting time when Stephanie reached out to me because it was just after I had gotten my vaccine. I had a six-month-old at home. I was working full-time and taking care of him full-time. And I was generally exhausted by a lot of things that were happening in the world, but I was so excited about this project because Judaism is something that I've chosen for him. When I started dating my husband, we negotiated what our future kids would be raised like. This was a few months into dating, and we were sitting at this bar in D.C., and I orchestrated a trade. I said that it would be really important to me and to my family to raise a Jewish child, and that I recognized that the most important thing to him would be to raise a Braves fan. So I agreed that one day, if we were to get married and to have children, that I would raise Jewish Braves fans on the one condition that no Northern Jewish child of mine will ever be named after Chipper Jones. And so flash forward, you know, almost a decade later, when presented with the possibility of this show, one, I thought it would be incredibly fun. I loved the idea of translating all of these arguments and fights and not fights, but like bar debates that I had had with friends dating back to college. I I could comment now on the Brooklyn Dodgers Jackie Robinson jersey you're wearing, but instead, can you tell me about the photos that are on the wall behind you? The four black and white prints of Sandy, as in Sandy Koufax, the Hall of Fame pitcher and guy who didn't throw game one of the World Series because it landed on Yom Kippur. That's Andy Koufax. When I first moved to Washington at 22 and was on a six-month $15,000 contract at Politico and could not afford anything for my apartment, I was also on all of these journalism listservs. And I got this link for a fire sale of the entire photo archive, the original plates, from the Chicago Sun-Times. And so I went and I bid on eBay and all of these original plates that have the original captions and like markings from photo editors. 
when these photos ran, most of the ones I have from Sandy, I have four, uh, are from the 1960s. I have a picture of him I was showing you. It's from his perfect game. It's the ninth inning. His form is starting to sort of collapse and he loses his baseball cap as he's he's throwing the ball. And you can see in the caption that came with it, it says, Koufax, who later said he knew all along he was pitching a no-hitter, shows the strain of pitching a perfect game in the ninth inning of action. And like it goes on, but uh, I also love, I have this amazing one. Um, it's after the 1963 World Series and he's toasting a glass of champagne in the locker room. So anyway, I loved these photos. I thought they were beautiful. I don't think that anyone else was nerdy enough to know that they existed or that they were being sold. And so I bought the set of Sandys. I bought original Hank Aaron photo plates. I don't know what I was going to do with them. I just had them for many years in an envelope. And when my now husband started dating me, and he's like, you you should have these framed. Like, they just shouldn't be sitting in an envelope. So we went to this Capitol Hill frame shop called Frame of Mine. Very clever. Uh, and I walked in with my Sandy photos. And the guy who's working at the shop, like, looks at the photos. And he looks at my now husband, assuming that they're his. And was like, oh, like, are you from Los Angeles? Because, you know, D.C. is a place where often people are from other places. And my now husband, without missing a beat, is like, no. My girlfriend's Jewish and she just really loves baseball. And it was such a normal moment, but it was also such a telling moment because Sandy is such a cultural calling card for all of us. Like you can say, oh, she's Jewish and she likes baseball. And it all makes sense. Like I didn't have to be from Brooklyn. I didn't have to be from Los Angeles. I didn't have to be a Dodgers fan. In fact, like most sentient beings now, I kind of hate the Dodgers. But she's Jewish and she likes baseball. Like that was connected. And it's part of this cultural story we've all inherited, which is the purpose and my view of what this show should be. Because I I, I know that everyone who's going to be listening to it will sort of associate themselves in some way with that feeling. All right. That's all amazing. But why did I actually have you on today? So... I'm going to answer that question in two ways, because I think that there's a very literal answer for why you wanted me on. And then there's also the thing that I want to say. So I'm going to address the literal answer to why you wanted me on, because I know that you think this is hilarious. So the Dodgers over the weekend unveiled a statue of Sandy Koufax. It is alongside a statue of Jackie Robinson, but they had it on a Saturday. And when they announced that it was going to be happening on a Saturday, you thought this was hilarious because Sandy Koufax, looking great in his suit, by the way, showed up on the Sabbath to have a statue dedicated to him at Dodger Stadium. So this is inherently funny, I think, for Jews who have have casted their Judaism onto Sandy Koufax. But it also is incredibly appropriate. And the ceremony was so wonderful and it was so beautiful. So there were there were some remarks and there was also a prepared video and Charlie Steiner did their narration for the video. And he talked about the game, game one of the 1965 World Series, where Sandy Koufax opted 
against playing because it was Yom Kippur. And to take a step back, we know from contemporaneous reporting and also from biographies like the one Jane Levy wrote that Sandy wasn't an intensely religious person. When he sat out that game, he didn't go to synagogue. He wasn't someone who was devoutly religiously Jewish. But he existed in a moment in time that was incredibly important for American Jews. And he was a really prominent Jew in a really unusual context because there weren't so many. I mean, obviously, Hank Greenberg existed and there were some other athletes. But what he was doing was being the best pitcher alive and opting not to pitch in game one. So what Charlie Steiner said about that moment was that it was representative of conscience, principle, and even peaceful disobedience. And what I loved about that is that it sort of fits into this larger picture of who Sandy was and who he is and why it's important that he's side by side with Jackie Robinson, who was one of the only players who welcomed him when he arrived at 19 to the Dodgers in the 50s. There was something that even though it might have on its face seemed funny or ironic, it was actually really fitting because we sort of put him in this world where he was important to and for Jews But the thing that was so on display on Saturday was how important he was to and for baseball. And so he was the seminal figure because he was important to us while also being important to them. So when you have someone like Clayton Kershaw, who talks about how important Sandy Koufax is to him, Clayton Kershaw, one of the greatest pitchers in the game today, Sandy Koufax being 86 years old, who still makes time in his schedule to mentor someone like Clayton, to call him, to like adjust his pitching when he's not pitching well, to ask him how his wife is doing. He was in the club and he's still in the club. And him being in the club and making that choice out of conscience, principle, and even peaceful disobedience in the world of the words of Charlie Steiner, that was so important. So yeah, like maybe on on first blush, you're like, hardy har har, they scheduled this on a Saturday. But what made him sitting on Yom Kippur important to us and why it's still part of this cultural inheritance that we have is that Yom Kippur is such an important day in terms of differentiating us from others. It's a unique holiday. It's one where even if you're not deeply religious, even if you don't keep the Sabbath. It's something that you try to do and protect often because it's part of this unbreakable chain of Judaism. And Sandy plays this unique role in the unbreakable chain of American Judaism. And when we get to the episode, we'll talk a lot about, you know, who we are and who we tried to make Sandy and how we view him today. And to see him in that moment, to see him still sort of as this powerful and towering figure. And to know that the two statues that will be at Dodger Stadium are Jackie Robinson, who broke the color barrier in Major League Baseball, and Sandy Koufax, who finally got his statue 50 years after his number was retired with Jackie. Like, that's awesome. That's cool. And it could have happened on a Saturday or a Sunday. And it's like so much more than the initial 
prompt that you gave me and the initial assignment that you gave me. And so it's such a fun representation, actually, of the show, because I think we do sort of poke fun and make jokes uh, about each other and us. But also, I think that there's this great sentimentality behind it, because that, in so many ways, is the purpose of sports. That and misery which is why we're also doing an episode on the New York Metropolitans. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it was, it was a beautiful ceremony. It was a cool moment. And in some ways, I can't believe it took us a half century to get that statue up there. But it's going to be there forever. And like sites in Jerusalem, people are going to go and they're going to take their kids and knowing nothing about Sandy Koufax, they will know that he was Jewish and they will know that he was one of the greatest. He is one of the greatest pitchers to ever live. Amazing. Meredith, thank you so much. And we look forward to sharing what we're working on with everybody sometime soon. Me too. Thanks, Josh. Thank you. Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamou, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. Hey, J. Crew! it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Brous and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for Tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Charbar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag uomember and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. Mailbox, got a letter in the mailbox, got a letter in the mailbox, mailbox. 
to the mailbox. First, uh, some people continue writing in about our camping thread. Dear Unorthodox, my husband and I are both New York City teachers. We love how friendly people are in campgrounds. Occasionally, someone will tell us we are the first Jews they've ever met. After we bought a camper, yes! if, Christmas vacation, if Christmas vacation coincided with Hanukkah, <laughs> we put our electric menorah in the front window of the camper. Inevitably, ah. inevitably, someone would show up at the site exclaiming, wow, we didn't know there were other Jews here. So yes, some Jews do camp. Yours, Joyce Peckman. Baruch Hashem. This is just amazing. <laughs> it should be, I, I will just make the point that she kind of makes my point <laughs> that, that some other Jew shows up where they see her menorah <laughs> and it's like, whoa, we didn't know other Jews camp. So even Jews think that Jews don't camp except, you know, the two Jews at the campground. So yeah, I'm just saying. Except for our next letter writer, Carl Shapiro, because he says, I thought only Jews went camping. (laughs) (laughs) My parents love spending a weekend in the woods with my sisters and me. They would save money by staying at a campground instead of a hotel on road trip vacations. Growing up twice a year, my family would join the families of my dad's high school friends from the stateside shuttle of Pikesville, Maryland for a long weekend of camping. I didn't know until recently that while we kids were building rock forts and hitting each other with sticks, our parents were getting high around the campfire. (laughs) (laughs) These Jews camp. By the way, I love the idea of camping because it's cheaper. It's cheap, than- right, right. <laughs> like, oh, wait, no, no, no. I thought only Jews camp. It's cheaper. <laughs> it's cheaper. <laughs> and his parents were getting higher on the campfire. Carl Shapiro, you're our kind of camping Jew. Leo, you want to take the next letter? I sure do because it hits very close to home. This is this is, this is all the things I care about. This is from Arden Donahue. Get a load of this. Who, by the way, sent very beautiful photos of the event described in this letter. Dear Leo, I agree, because Arden Donahue is very smart, Mark Oppenheimer, and knows what's what. I agree that a glass does improve a drink, or at least the experience, so that the drink itself can be better appreciated. I made and had my first martini earlier this week. I, this is like a, like a bar bat mitzvah right there. I mean, if you have your first martini, like, you're, you're a person. You're a human in this world. I really liked it. Now, here comes the only part that I have. Yeah, this is problematic. About. This yeah. is problematic. I got to say, yeah. this, this goes into religious observance. So I'm going to be very orthodox about this. Because yeah. Arden writes, one part vermouth, two gin, and a couple dashes of bitters. Here are a couple of photos. So the photos are lovely. Lovely. But first of all, and, and look, I'll forgive the bitters. The bitters are a thing. Some people do them. I don't right. mean to, you know. But one part vermouth to two parts gin. That part, really. One part vermouth. To, that raised oh my hackles. My what is Lord, it supposed it, to be? Just wet. way too much vermouth. One part vermouth to 10 parts gin. Yeah. That's. <laughs> you, At the very least. I mean, the way, the way my friend Jonathan Pitt does it is he puts the ice in the shaker, pours in a little vermouth shakes it up, coats the ice, and then dumps out the vermouth. So that basically the only vermouth you have is a little coating, a, a hint of it, a, a remnant of it on the ice. But Arden, Donahue, welcome to the club. You're on the right path. You're on the derech. But wait, you guys are missing the best part of Arden's email was the PS. I don't see the PS. Arden says, PS, the Israeli candidates wouldn't be squid gaming it in reference to a, re- a recent conversation. It would be a yid game. Oh. Ooh, letter of the week. Fantastic. Donahue. Liel, this next one is for you, but I'm going to read it because it's like a present to you. 
Dear Unorthodox, personally, I am also an avid baseball fan, as are my three boys, so I've certainly seen Mr. Celery many times. <laughs> my reaction used to be the same as Liel's, but over time, I guess I've just grown used to him. Woohoo, as he says. P.S., the official mascot for the, what is it, the Delaware Blue Hens or something? The Blue Rocks, you fascist. The Blue Rocks. It, the official mascot is actually Rocky Blue Winkle. Yes, he is. Mr. Celery isn't the mascot per se, but rather the guy who inexplicably runs onto the field every time the Blue Rocks score a run. Inexplicably is completely correct. He's like a drunk uncle. He's like, they scored a run! On a wholly separate note, this writer writes, the two-episode-long debate about whether Jews camp brought to mind something related. My late father-in-law, Lenny Rubin, used to say, Jews don't fish. While personally... I don't fish. I always suspected that was definitely wrong, but I never had a national podcast to test the theory. We really, really would love to see Liel in Wilmington. We'd love to see Stephanie and Mark as well, of course. Regards, Russell Silbergleed. Now, first off, Russell Silbergleed is a power name. It is. I want you to be my lawyer, my accountant, my literary agent, <laughs> my dad. Russell Silbergleed, when you go to the charcoal pit in Wilmington, Delaware, you, you get seated first before Joe Biden. Wait, Liel, this is great. Suddenly now you have important business to do when you see your in-laws in Wilmington. You're like, so, so sorry. Um, there's someone I need to talk to for work. Russell Silbergleed. Uh, second, I like that you that you wanted to test this theory against the J. Crew. J. Crew, is Russell right that Jews don't fish? 914-570-4869. I freaking love fishing. It's one of my absolute favorite activities. Yeah, Uncle Joel fishes. Running through the mailbox, um, I just put this in. We're not actually going to read the letter, but we got a bit of spam with the subject line, an easier, cleaner circumcision aftercare kit. I don't think you mean spam. I think you mean effectively targeted advertisements. I, I guess you're right. I guess you're right. I guess you're right. Reader, we clicked. And all we can say is, if you want to buy an ad on our show, we'll take your money, but we're not reading the ad here. Stephanie, you want to read the next letter? Dear Unorthodox. It's summer, so my wife dutifully enrolled our two young children in camps to keep them occupied as we attempt to work while California swelters. The local JCC provides the bulk of the week-long sessions for our proud Jewish boys, but our seven-year-old is also interested in cooking and geography, so we enthusiastically sent him to the local city community center for a week-long session entitled Cooking Around the USA. They describe the camp as follows. Campers will visit a different U.S. state each day, Learn about what that state is distinctly known for and eat delicious foods associated with that state. I, I think I know where this is going. <laughs> when he came home the first Monday, we inquired, what did you prepare? We made apple pie, apple cake, apple tart, and applesauce. Quite a few desserts, I thought to myself. And what state did you study? I asked. Washington State. Oh, which has apples. Okay. Then came Friday. What did you make in camp today? I asked as I picked him up. <laughs> Kugel. I prepared the noodles. Wait, Kugel? You made Kugel? What state did you learn about? New York. <laughs> <laughs> New York, I guffawed? Petach Tikva. <laughs> <laughs> what else did you make? <laughs> Black and white cookies. Black and white cookies, I laughed. You made Jewish deli food for New York? <sighs> anyway, Avi Matskin, Campbell, California. Keep up the good cooking work um, in that family. That is amazing. What a, what a city camp. I love it. Over, over in Oakland, they're making pacha. <laughs> Swami Tiagananda is our Gentile of the Week. 
You may remember him because he was one of the faith leaders in Tablet's project, The Tent, which many of you joined us for. And he's the Hindu chaplain at MIT and Harvard. He joined us to talk about Hinduism and how technology can be used for spiritual ends. Welcome to the show. Very happy to be with you all. So let's start from the beginning. We are a Jewish podcast, and each week we have a Gentile of the week. And this week, you are our Gentile. So for someone who is listening who's not particularly familiar with Hinduism, could you start with the basics? What what does Swami mean? Swami is a Sanskrit term. It literally means master. And it points to the ideal of being a master of oneself. And in the Hindu tradition, monks have this title called Swami. So Swami it's kind of become my first name here, but actually it's like a rabbi or a Catholic priest being called father. So Swami is a little bit like that. So it's not, not the name really, it's more a title. Is that, I, I've spoken to a few Catholic priests, it's so interesting you bring it up, who told me that they always felt a little bit uncomfortable with the title father, especially when talking, you know, to their mothers, <laughs> they had to call them Hey, Father, forgive me. How do you feel with, with such a title? I mean, I have the same thoughts about rabbis. Being called Swami sounds like, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a big kind of responsibility, isn't it? It sort of compels you to always live up to this title. Absolutely. And I think it's meant to be that way. So I just see it more as an ideal that I must strive for. That ideal of not like being a master of others, but being a master of oneself having control over one's own faculties. So it's an ideal that, and even the second part of my name is a name that my teacher gave me. I didn't select it when I was ordained monk. That was against points to an ideal also. So for instance, Tyagananda, it's Tyaga and Ananda. Again, two Sanskrit terms. Tyaga means letting go. Ananda means joy. So put together, What's become my last name now, but actually is my real name given when I was ordained, really means the joy of letting go. So another ideal to strive for, because it's very counterintuitive. Normally we feel the more I have, the happier I'll be. But the more I can let go of the unnecessary baggage, the happier I'll be. So it's also another ideal. I love that. So does anyone call you by the name you were born with anymore? No. In fact, in the Hindu tradition, being a monastic is almost like your prior life has ended. So we no longer carry our family name. None of these two names are the names that my parents gave me. We don't carry our family name. I mean, of course, if if at all I meet my family and relatives of my pre-monastic days, they of course know me by my old name. So they sometimes call me, but most people don't even know what my earlier name was. Now look, the the monastic life has always been challenging, that always been difficult. But but I think it's fair to say that it's been particularly difficult these last 30 or 40 years, precisely the term of your engagement with it, because technology and the pace of, of you know, modern civilization has made it so that to kind of stay truly connected to these traditions, to these promises, to this control, strikes me as almost impossible. And most of us find it difficult just to not take their iPhones with them into the bedroom every night and, and you know, become completely addicted. D- do you find that it's growing more and more difficult the more prevalent technology is, the more faster life is? 
It probably may be, I guess, to the newer generation. I mean, I grew up in the 60s and 70s and I think whatever technology was already available in the West was still not available in a small town in India that I grew up. And I'm actually, I'm grateful for it, that just the simplicity and the quietness of those childhood years is, is something I would, I would, I would ever, always would want to go back to that. So, I mean, the technology is great. I, I use an iPhone. I've got all these gadgets with me and I'm fine with it, but I'm happy that I didn't have all of this when I was growing up. And so I'm sure I think, well, I'm not sure. How do I know what's, what, what's happening to the younger generation? But I would imagine that probably the younger generation has a lot of avenues to get distracted more, but also a lot of avenues to express themselves, which probably people of my generation didn't have. So it's a mixed blessing, I think. And I think if used well, I think technology can be a great asset, even in one's spiritual pursuits. But in order to use these resources well, there has to be some amount of refinement and culture of the mind, I think. So can you give us an example of how you see, you know, technology as being something that could be used towards spiritual ends? Yeah. I mean, we use technology here at the, at the Vedanta Center. We have podcasts also, and we stream all of our programs live. And so it's able to reach people in distant parts of the world. And it was especially helpful during the pandemic because when most of the time we were closed and everything was online. So it's it's been really blissful in many ways. On the other hand, if our mind is not disciplined, then it's so easy to get distracted. I mean, you just go online at the internet and there are like millions of websites and you look and start looking videos and then you forget what you were looking for and then you go someplace else. It's almost like going to a library, searching for a reference, and then you find so many other books and you start reading them and then you forgot why you went there in the first place. So I think if the mind is focused and well-trained, mind, the mind knows what it wants and how to get it, technology is great. I mean, you know, how much time you can save in doing research nowadays you with Google and can just kind of get whatever references you want. In olden days, we had to kind of go to the library, turn the pages, find this. None of that is needed now. So it's wonderful. You're our guest on our Jewish podcast. Is there anything that like you've always wanted to know about Judaism that you never you never really understood? Was there is there something that we can can help you with <laughs> about our tradition? Actually, I find a lot of well, what little I know about Judaism uh, is I find a lot of resonance in many of the ideas and the questions that are raised in the Jewish tradition. And what I very much appreciate is the the emphasis on, on family and community that I find in the Jewish tradition. What I'm curious about is how is the individual seen in the Jewish tradition? I mean, I'm one, and I mean, it's kind of a related question in the sense that I'm not sure whether, whether the idea of rebirth or reincarnation or one life, whether it is un, how it's universally believed or there are differences within the Jewish tradition itself about but this is the only time we are we come here or we come here repeatedly. Because the question that happens in the Hindu tradition is, well, if you're a Hindu in this life, that doesn't mean that you're going to be Hindu in every life. You can be reborn in any circumstances, in any cultural tradition, in any of these things. So one who is a Hindu in this life could be, might have been a Jewish person in the last life or could be a Jewish person in the next life. So it's kind of 
the understanding of a religious identity is much more fluid in the hindu tradition because of this acceptance of the possibility of rebirth so how is that seen in the jewish tradition so i'll answer it it's a fascinating question and and we could spend months and months and months talking about it you know obviously Judaism's belief of of the souls and where they come from and what happens to them after the the body uh, expires is is deeply deeply intricate. We believe in Olam Haba, the world to come, in which the soul, which you know from the moment of its birth, if you will, uh, from the moment of its inception, was Jewish and and goes on to a place in which it lives disembodied uh, remains such. So so we don't have this kind of fluidity of reincarnation in, in quite the uh, the Hindu way. But I will say something interesting because you did phrase the question so beautifully as, you know, what, what, what do we believe about the individual? If you start reading the Hebrew Bible, you notice right away that uh, chapter one and chapter two have two totally different stories of how man was created, right? In chapter one, uh, we're told that God created man and women together, that he created them with the express purpose of taking over everything, conquering the land, mastering the animals, basically being this kind of like great heroic doer, you know, builder of, of civilizations. And then in chapter two, we're given a totally different story. Uh, God creates man out of dirt. God then creates woman out of a, a rib that he takes for man. And God tells man and woman together, you're not here to conquer, you're here as custodians. You're here to conserve, you're here to take care. Uh, and a very famous uh, rabbi by the name of Yosef Dov Soloveitchik uh, wrote this great book about it and said, these are not two different accounts. It's, it's the same account because we have, this, the, we have these two sides to us, the side that wants to conquer the world and the side that knows we have to take care of it. And, and here's how we, uh, we resolve this tension. We resolve this tension, A, by coming together with other people. That's why we have men and women, you and someone else. We resolve this tension by looking deep within ourselves and understanding these two sides. And we resolve this tension by inviting Hashem, by inviting God into this relationship. So only if we understand ourselves, only if we are in community with others, and only if we let God into this community, are we anywhere near complete individuals. Oh, wow. I love that. I like that like way of thinking. Only in, in, the, in the Hindu tradition also, there are many different stories about creation. They're not just one kind of thing. This is how it happened. And, uh, and the philosophers in the, or the theologians, if you would like to call them that way, they say that the reason that there are many stories which are different about creation is because it never happened. And what they say is it's, like, it's a little bit like a, a, the kind of story that the Buddha actually told that if a person is hurt and injured and is bleeding, now that's the time, the first thing you have to do is stop the bleeding, heal the person, try to do something about it, rather than asking the question like, how did it happen? From where, which side the arrow came? Or how were you shot? All those questions can come later on. First thing is to remove that pain and suffering. And so what the Hindus say is, right now we find ourselves in this situation that we are here as mortal, vulnerable creatures, find a way of how to transcend these present human limitations. And the theology built around it is that once we become free from our present human limitations, we will see that all of this was just like a one big bad dream and then we just wake up. So it's essentially a very kind of a non-dualistic approach. And that's why they have many stories of creation and they see that as an asset 
that if there were just one story, then it's like, wow, that's how it happened. But the fact that there are many stories, it's like telling many different uh, nighttime stories to a little child to put them to sleep. None of them you believe are real. It's a little bit like that. So Swami, I, I'm obsessed with with your tradition. I, I try to read the Bhagavad Gita every you know two or three months or so. I've, I've learned so much from it and, and other texts. Tell us, before we let you go, if we want a, a kind of introduction, if our listeners want the sort of like next step, if they want to learn a little bit more about Hinduism, what, what's the one book, the one text, the one part, the one thing that they should go on to do next to learn a little bit more? I think the the best introduction book, in fact, I gave a course on it at Harvard a few years ago, is called Vedanta, A Simple Introduction by Pravrajika Vrajaprana. She's a nun in the Vedanta Society in Southern California in Santa Barbara. And that book has, is fascinating, especially, especially written for the American children. The author herself is an American. And I think that would be a good book to go to to understand the basics of the tradition. Terrific. And we will send our listeners to your podcast, the lectures you do as part of the Vedanta Society. Swami, it's been such a pleasure and a privilege speaking with you. Thanks for being a guest on Unorthodox. Thank you so much. I listen to your podcast every time and I, I love, the, love the conversation and I always learn a lot from it. So great work. Well, thank you so much. Thank you, Sarah. Appreciate your time. Mazel tovs. Stephanie, do you have a mazel tov this week? I have a shout out. Okay, so I got invited to a party this week. Not to brag, but I also had not been to a party in two years. I knew one of the hosts and I walked into their apartment and I realized at the moment that I walked in that I knew zero other people there. And I had this <laughs> feeling of like, oh my God, I actually don't know what to do at parties. I have no idea what you, like, what is small talk? What is appropriate? Like you, you had completely forgotten. You no longer remember how to be with other humans. I definitely never was like good at it, but I'm, I just got really nervous. And I went to say hi to the host, who's a great writer, James McCauley at the Washington Post. And he said, you're here. Great. My best friend's parents are in town and they love your podcast. And I said, hallelujah. Manna from heaven. <laughs> <laughs> so I got to meet Karen and Alan Katz from Dallas, and it was so fun hanging out with them. Hold on. You spent you spend the whole evening with the Katzes, didn't you? The yeah. whole party was you and the Katzes. Yeah, they were like trying to leave. I was like, no, 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 no. You have to stay. You are my best friends. I don't want to talk to anyone else here. <laughs> you got bageled. You got bageled at the party. They I got bageled spotted big you. time. They spotted you as a pod host. Leo, do you have a, a Mazel Tov this week? I have two Mazel Tovs. One is elegiac. I'm an immigrant here friends, as you know. And I wish to wish America a happy birthday. Flawed as she is, still love you, baby. But more importantly, this Saturday, Gimel Thomas is the 28th Yurtzeit of the Lubavitcher Rebbe, a person who in my own life, I find so deeply meaningful, reminding us there are no Reformed Jews and Conservative Jews, Reconstructionist Jews and Renewal Jews. They're just Jews. We're all in this together. And may we never lose track of that important Whoa. wisdom. My Mazel Tov this week is to all of the people who kept all of those Jewish camps alive through, through now three summers of COVID. There were people who thought that a lot of these camps would fail. And my own anecdotal knowledge and also to some extent reporting knowledge is that the vast, vast, vast majority of them raised enough money from loyal alumni and parents and foundations 
donors to keep keep doing it. It is a it is hard work. It is low budget. It is nonprofit, and it is um, extremely powerful in creating meaningful memories and experiences, and above all, just a lot of joy for our young people. As long as you keep the horses observant, I'm all for it. <laughs> So the horse's food, it's it's glotz kosher, right, Leo? It's hey Israel. Yes. <laughs> so to all of the people who do that hard work, the the counselors, the camp nurses, the chefs, the custodians, the everybody, Kol HaKavod and Mazel Tov, and thank you, thank you, thank you, and have a wonderful summer. Unorthodox is a production of Tablet Studios. The show is hosted by me, Mark Oppenheimer, with Stephanie Butnick and Leah Leibowitz. We're produced and edited by Josh Cross, Robert Scaramucci, and Quinn Waller. And the team also includes Sarah Fredman, Ader, Daron Ruskay, Tanya Singer, and Sam Hacker. Please follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Also, we're on Friendster. You can get Unorthodox swag at bit.ly slash unorthoshirt. Also, we're on MySpace. Our episode art is by Esther Werdiger. Our theme music is by Golem, online at golemrocks.com. Also Foursquare. Mailbox theme is by Steve Barton. You can write to us. Snail mail, P.O. Box 20079991001. And rabbinic supervision this week by Rabbi Yael Hammerman at Anshe Chesed, New York. We come to you while celebrating the country's birthday at Tablet Studios. Shalom, friends. Shalom, friends.